1: On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no
0: BS5, with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Okay, well, Brittany, welcome (laughs) to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast. It's actually been a while since The two of us were on an interview together. So this will be fun. And we would love, Brittany, if you could start by talking a little bit more about yourself, you know, what you do now, and then how you came to specialize
2: in Crohn's and colitis. Yeah. And first off, thank you so much for inviting me today. I. No, it's a lot of work to host the podcast and I'm just really glad that you guys are getting the good word out there on intuitive eating and um yeah I really appreciate what you guys do so thank you um but yeah my name is Brittany Rogers um I uh yeah became a dietitian um about uh, over 10 years ago at this point. Um, and before that, one of the reasons why that encouraged me to become a dietitian is when I was about nine years old, um, my bowel movements started to change. And, you know, at the time, I, I didn't know I was supposed to tell doctors this information and no one asked. So um, over time, the next, you know, four or five years, I was, it ended up becoming like, Diarrhea frequently throughout the day, it turned to, you know, blood in, this, in the stool, um, a lot of cramping, pain, uh, a lot of urgency, and ultimately after hospitalization and getting a bunch of tests, I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis um, in high school. And, you know, I remember when I was first diagnosed, I asked, you know, the question that a lot of patients ask, which is, oh, what should I eat? You know, and I remember my doctor saying two things in the same uh, appointment. One was that diet doesn't matter. And then also to tell me to track my diet to find my trigger foods. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) at different times, those both those were both said um, confusing. it is, it is. And I think, and the thing is, this is often common, um, for patients to, to be getting these conflicting messages. So I did track my diet and I went and I was so proud of myself. I was like, look, I tracked it. I went to the next doctor's appointment and I was like, here, here it is. And he didn't even look at it. He was like, he just said, great, keep tracking and see what you find. And I felt really like, you know it was really upsetting in that moment because i was like well i don't like i'm a teenager. i was a teenager at the time i was eating like french fries (laughs) for lunch i didn't know what healthy like i wasn't a registered dietitian at that time and now looking back i'm like you know you know that's where a good time to like advocate um having a patient see a a you know a dietitian or like a healthcare professional that can help them answer those questions and give them the advice that they, they really need at that moment. Um, but yeah, because I didn't really get any advice, I pretty much was like, well, I guess I'll just eat anything then because I'm not going to track this anymore. I don't know what I, I didn't know what I was looking for. Um, but I definitely noticed that there were foods that triggered symptoms. Um, and it was like, some of which were just, you know, not not a big deal, and others were, I would I would consider traumatic or trauma foods. Now, um, you know, after having my dad's spicy chili, I probably will never have chili, spicy chili, ever in my life again. I, I've ultimately, initially, I started with um, different careers in nutrition and um, di- di- worked at different hospitals, but when i had the opportunity to start a private practice and focus on helping people with ibd i jumped right in and i haven't looked back um it's been something that's been incredibly rewarding and um yeah like it's it's exactly what i was you know one of those things where you're like wow this is what i was made for so That was a long winded way of answering your question, but. (laughs)
1: No, it's amazing. I think so many practitioners and I know me and Dana are obviously, we both have celiac disease. Like you come into this a lot of ways as, you know, patient zero, you know, like, and you kind of weave in and out. And I could see too how, like you mentioned trauma foods and not knowing, you know, as a teenager, what do I need for nutrient density and what do I need to eat? And also what do I want to eat? And also at that time being told, Oh, like you need to be smaller. You need to do all these things in like such an impressionable age that in some ways is almost kind of good that they didn't tell you what to eat, <laughs> you know, cause like that could have been a whole host of like a rabbit hole. But then also at the same time, it's like, man, I could have used some kind of guidance for someone to provide me with some tools of understanding of what can be inflammatory for ibd and what can cause these types of things so i'm interested because i'm sure you've seen it and i know that you kind of specialize in this but how do you feel like our diet obsessed culture can really intersect with ibd for a lot of patients and maybe even yourself in your own journey
2: yeah i mean i think um you guys probably know this very well but diet culture is really everywhere you know um as it is for, you know, people without IBD, it's, you know, there for everyone with IBD as well. And then on top of that, it also shows up in research and in healthcare professionals, you know, when they put patients on restrictive therapeutic diets without even considering what their relationship with food is or what that could do to their relationship with food. Um, You know, it shows up in family members encouraging trying these restrictive diets that may or may not have been researched um, or saying things like, well, you're not supposed to eat that. Um, you know, it shows up in our friends and coworkers when they say, you look great. Did you lose weight? When in reality, we might be the sickest we've ever been. And for me, that very much showed up when I was in high school. You know, um, I was 20 pounds underweight and because I was running to the bathroom and having diarrhea so many times a day. Um, And I would, because I'm also tall, I was also told, you know, things like, oh, you look like a model. You look so, you know, it's like all these comments that when you're so impressionable, it's exactly what you want to hear. But at the same time, you don't know how to, you should feel about those comments because you're like, well, I know I'm like really sick right now, you know? And at the time I didn't even think about that because I was like too exhausted too. But, you know, looking back, it certainly had a negative impact on my relationship with my body um, in many years to come when I did gain the weight back or I I should say just gain the weight because um, I was becoming healthier, you know, so that I think that plays out for a lot of individuals with IBD.
0: It's really important to mention as well that when you have IBD, it can your weight can kind of go either way due to what's happening with your body, right? Because um, I work with a couple of people yes. with Crohn's and colitis, and they've had multiple people say to them like, oh, aren't people with IBD like really frail and small? Like you don't look like someone that has IBD or celiac, you know, whatever it is. So can you talk a little bit about that and how you work with your clients on coping with weight
2: changes that happen as a result of the disease? absolutely yeah um i think that's a common misconception but you know ibd is found in individuals with with all body sizes and shapes i know um and i think like there's many to your point there's many reasons for weight changes in individuals with ibd surgeries active disease getting into remission certain medications, restrictive diets, and eating disorders can all lead to weight changes. Um, I think what I typically like to focus on with clients is that, you know, there's a uh, there's a there's lot of things, but like, you know, one of the things is like, we can't really control what a lot of people may say to us, but we can control how we respond. So kind of we're preparing ourselves for comments, from others is helpful um, and deciding how you want to respond in a way that's going to help you feel better about it. Um, Reminding yourself that, um, well, and I guess to that point also, if there's like family or loved ones, you know, you can also create that boundary and ask them to um, not talk about your body or your food um, because it can be triggering for you and, um, you know, hold them to that. Um, also reminding yourself that if you've lost weight during active disease, it, it was not a healthy weight loss and likely not a healthy body size for you. You know, I think one thing that's often, it's very common in people with IBD is, is malnutrition and that's associated with worse disease outcomes and can occur in patients with all body sizes or shapes. So it's really important to note that like, um, even if you were in a larger body and then you lose a bunch of weight, that's not a good thing. Um, and it's, I think a lot of times we know patients know that it's not a healthy way to lose a weight, but then they're kind of happy at the same time that they did lose it and they want to keep that weight loss. But the thing is, that's not, that's not a healthy place for your body to be, um, because that's likely as a result of malnutrition.
1: Isn't it kind of interesting how we think of, of like um, weight changes in that way as like productive, even though it's like, no friend, that's a sign of malnourishment. Like, yeah. and I have had clients of mine who have active eating disorders and they also have IBD, which you mentioned mm-hmm. on Instagram too, about how up to 93% of people with Crohn's and colitis have disordered eating and I've even seen it in like full blown eating disorders and there is like this weird attachment to not really wanting to resolve their IDD because in a way it's also been utilized as part of their disordered eating pattern and I'm curious for you as a practitioner how do you typically see disordered eating come up and show up in these in your clients in this way
2: yeah, I have also seen that. Um, and that's a really tough place to be um, for those patients. But um, yeah, disordered eating is very common. Up to 93% of patients with IBD have disordered eating. And I think there's so many factors that contribute to this. So patients are like like myself, they're not provided adequate nutrition information on their disease right away. Um, and so they're not provided that they often go to the internet for to do their own research and unfortunately there's so much misinformation out there and it's all conflicting so you know one list may say gluten is okay and one list may say it's not and then then what do you do about that you know one says that you need to follow this diet one says you don't need to do that and it's all very conflicting and can lead to more confusion and preoccupation with food. So it kind of sets the stage for disordered eating. Um, I think, you know, food avoidance is the most commonly reported disordered eating uh, behavior with up to 89% of individuals avoiding at least one food. Um, Some may delay or skip meals during the day so that they don't have symptoms um, or may eat minimally um, or very restrictively. Unfortunately, when, when, you know, as I'm sure you guys are see with your clients too, when, you know, restriction happens and happens during the day, sometimes that can lead to binge eating or, or overeating at night. Um, and there was actually a study that in Crohn's disease patients that up to 29% hit, hit the cutoff criteria for moderate levels of binge eating. Now they did use like a, a binge eating screening tool that hasn't Really been validated in in IBD patients, but um, it's obviously still a concerning problem, no, nevertheless. Um, I think it also is tough because there's certain situations where um, there is more of a need for diet changes. For instance, um, you know, Crohn's disease patients with stricturing disease, they may need to eat in a certain way to avoid bowel obstructions. Uh, patients after surgery may need to adjust their diet so that they can give their time, their body time to heal, um, and not have complications. So that obviously complicates things when you already have a disordered relationship with food. And I think one thing that um, upsets me is that what a lot of healthcare professionals are saying in the field are saying things like, "Food restriction is a normal physiological response to symptoms." And I will say, like, I know, I know that's true because of course, when you have symptoms, especially if it seems like it's coming from a food, of course, you'd want to restrict that and not eat that and pull back in your diet. But I also think it's important to not normalize restriction because oftentimes it's not necessary. And in fact, sometimes it actually, um, it does have its side effects of its own and also, Um, oftentimes having a more expansive diet is actually helps reduce symptoms, even though it's counterintuitive. Um, But yeah, I think it's important to highlight that restrictive eating is not benign.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because we did an episode on this a couple of weeks ago on, you know, just because something is normal doesn't mean it's optimal right like restrictive eating eating disorders disordered eating are all completely normalized in our culture and kind of under the window of like oh it's just quote healthy dieting or whatever and especially because there are so many especially in the functional medicine field and in the gut health field elimination diets are the norm right but then you see so many people that have been on such a restrictive diet for so long that then if you do a stool test on them Where are the beneficial bacteria? (laughs) They're completely gone, which then can contribute to a lot of negative symptoms as well. I wonder if you could talk a little bit, because I've heard this so many times from the clients that I work with, with Crohn's and colitis and, you know, celiac as well, um, and autoimmune disease, is they have this thought like, oh, if I had only been following, you know, X elimination diet, you know, for, you know, whatever amount of time, I never would have gotten Crohn's or I never would have gotten colitis or I never would have gotten autoimmune disease. And I completely understand where that thought process comes from what with all of the, you know, very conflicting nutrition information out there. But I've had clients whose doctors, functional medicine practitioners and everything have basically said this verbatim to them. So
2: could you help them through that thought process? (laughs) Yes. Yes. I have heard that many times as well. And I think- the important thing to know is that we don't know the. there's not there's likely not one cause of IBD. It's likely a number of factors, including um, an exaggerated immune system response to certain environmental triggers in genetically susceptible individuals. So as far as we know, diet is one of many factors contributing to the um, increased risk for developing IBD. But so is like having a carpet. Um, when you're growing up or like, um, you know, whether you have a bed partner or not and like random factors like that. So we can't really control any of those factors. So, you know, I think, I think a lot of times we put this huge weight on our shoulders of like, I caused my IBD or like, I have to control my IBD. Sometimes you can be doing everything right and still have active inflammation. And I think that's important to like take that, you know, I think, it of course, I think it's helpful to do things that make you feel your best, but I think to a certain extent, and then it can become unhealthy for us to have that burden of, um, it's just a heavy weight on your shoulders of blame.
1: Um, yeah, I feel like the, the burden of blame, I think really hits home in a lot of ways, because there is this idea that like. We do tend to think that because we're told, right, we read these things, like you said, out of desperation and out of lack of guidance, right, from the medical field, people are going to places where they probably wouldn't have sought information um, around how to manage certain types of symptoms or whatever. And then they read things like, you can heal your Crohn's, you can heal celiac disease, you can do all these things. Like, And it's like, dude, that's not how it works. It just yeah. shows that <laughs> you know all, would nothing. be great.
2: <laughs> Yeah, it would be great, you but have, you didn't have it,
1: then. For, first of all. Um, but then, like, there's a lot of that information that's out there. And so out of desperation, you kind of go to these places looking for this. And then at the same time, then you feel like, well, I've been told food is controllable. I can't control that I have a, a partner in my bed, right? I can't. Maybe you can. You know, I can't control that. I had carpet growing up. You know what I mean? I can't control some of these environmental factors unless I, you know, do all these different things that are quite frankly like prohibitive for, for cost in a lot of ways. Right. Like I don't have, you might not have the privilege of financial privilege in order to do some of these things, but there is this like, this internal and external expectation that food is something that you can control. And so it makes sense that it would be like this perfect, like little storm to hit together. Or this is why me and Dana specialize in this and see this all the time, because it is like this perfect storm where it's like, okay, I've been told my whole life that food is something that I can control. And I want to do anything I can to not feel like I'm having disaster pants nine times a day and so whatever I can't control that there's no carpet here but I can control that I what I put in my mouth and then it becomes like its own level of obsession and stuff and I think giving people like liberation from that and saying like dude even if you were doing all of that That doesn't necessarily mean that it's one going to change anything or it would have changed the outcome of you getting this overall. And I feel like it's hard to switch your mindset from elimination based to more of an add in approach. Even like you said, it feels really counterintuitive to, to have a really A diet that's very has a lot of variety in it and how that can be beneficial when you've been told through the through googling and maybe you're googling people who are like have a lot of credentials in this like it's not like it's all wackadoos you know like sometimes it's like Mm -hmm. a lot of credentials and you're like oh my god like they have like professional credentials I trust them I hear these reviews I desperately want this too how do you then make the switch to okay um I've eliminated everything and all it's given me is more anxiety and I don't really have that much symptom relief to, okay, how do I add variety back in without feeling like you're doing something wrong or like ignoring the fact that you have IBD. So I'm, I'm curious, like how you help people make that transition.
2: Yeah. And I think like what's important to note is like, I think with research and diet. It's different than research with medications because with medications we can, and the research in that we can, it's always, it's higher quality research. We can have everyone be blinded. You can have a placebo. It's very easy to control all those factors. With diet, you know, if you're not having something. So these research studies on diet are of lower quality. We often tend to have more, um, less often have like randomized control trials And often have more observational where we basically just watch patients and see what they eat and then decide, you know, okay, well, these foods, people who eat the most of this have an increased risk of flare versus the people who eat the least. That research isn't of higher quality, isn't as the same level of quality as the medication research. So I think that's also something to keep in mind that some of these restrictive diets, they may have some benefit in the research studies but those are of lower quality than the medication research. So I think that's important to note first. And then in terms of um focusing on variety, I like having I like giving people options when dealing with trigger and inflammatory foods. Um and I also think actually I'll like step back cuz I think a lot of times people don't even know what trigger foods are or what inflammatory foods are as well. So Trigger foods are really any food that causes a symptom response. Doesn't mean that it's inflammatory. It doesn't mean that it's causing harm to your body. It could be anti-inflammatory, but it's causing a symptom response. Anti or Inflammatory foods are really foods that research has found that when you consume frequently over time, not in a single dose, frequently over time, increase the risk for active disease. So even with inflammatory foods, if you have them once, you know, if you have them here and there, it's not causing inflammation. We don't have research to support that. So I think that's important to highlight as well. Um, So it's not so do or die in your diet. So variety is actually really helpful for um, working with um, inflammatory and trigger foods. So I have kind of three options that I like to you give patients for dealing with trigger and inflammatory foods so the first is to swap out the inflammatory or trigger food for satisfying alternatives so um maybe an option for that is like let's let's use like chili powder which would be like a potential trigger food but it's actually anti-inflammatory so chili powder does not work well for me it's a trigger food So when I see it in a recipe, um, I can just swap it out. Usually I add in some cumin in its place. It's not the same, but it's an option and it works for me. Another option um, that I give patients is like decreasing the inflammatory or trigger food in that recipe. So that could look like, you know, maybe someone that has like comes from a cultural background where they use uh, chili powder all the time. And they, and if they know that chili powder triggers symptoms, they don't and they, but they really love it, then they shouldn't completely eliminate it. Let's try to decrease it in the recipe and see if the symptoms are more tolerable or non-existent and find that right balance for that person. Um, and then the last option is to just have it as is. Sometimes the symptoms are (laughs) worth it (laughs) for me. Um, you know, my dad's spicy chili would not be worth it. That's a trauma food for me. And I think that's valid if there's some some of those foods that may not be worth it. But I do make my own adapted sweet chili that I really enjoy. So I think, um, and then there's certain uh, trigger foods or inflammatory foods that I'm like, you know what? I want this as is. I don't want an adapted version. I don't want to have, you know, I just want to have it as is. And it's so enjoyable that way. So I think giving yourself options. be really helpful definitely and then to throw a little curveball
0: into the equation what advice do you give clients when no matter what you eat everything hurts and i'm dying
2: (laughs) yeah um i think like i would say definitely reach out to um your doctor (laughs) immediately because if you feel that much pain then that is valid And like, let's not normalize that. Let's see, like, let's get your inflammatory markers checked. It's not good enough for you to feel like that every day. You deserve better and you don't need to be feeling like that. So your medication may need to be adjusted. Um, If it's your IBD, maybe it's your IBD-related medications, maybe it's prednisone or or, um, budesonide or a foam enema or suppository that needs to be changed or added on. Um, if it's an IBS flare of your IBD, you know, knowing that if you're in remission and you're having these symptoms, then maybe it's um, maybe it's medications that address the pain or any of those symptoms that you're experiencing. You know, if you're having lots of trips to the bathroom, there's medications to help with that. You know, emodium, psyllium husk powder, cholestyramine, which is like a bile acid binder. Um, so, you know, I think also like you can, Practice mindfulness-based activities like uh, meditation, diaphragmatic breathing, resonance breathing. Um, there's there's so many different options um, to help you that don't have anything to do with diet, which I love. We have all these options to use that don't don't equate to restriction. Because if you're already no matter what you do, you're having pain, then it's it's probably related to your IBD. um, My guess is that it's related to your um, active inflammation and that needs to be addressed. Yeah,
0: and then second part follow-up to that question right if someone's in a situation where let's say they're not quite at everything hurts and I'm dying but it's like oh my god everything that I'm eating is just not going very well right I'm trying to you know figure out my trigger foods I'm trying to figure out my trauma foods I'm trying to figure out inflammatory foods there's so much nutrition information floating around and I don't know what to do and then when they try to eat less of let's say known trigger foods for them or evidence-based inflammatory foods, or even past, you know, trauma foods for them, it kind of sends them into
2: a whole restrict binge cycle. I would say definitely reaching out, um, and working with like a professional to help you. That's like really, really important. Um, because often, like often I help patients expand their diet, even when, um, you know, that, that often doesn't happen with my patients who are getting support. If they're getting support, I'm actually expanding their diet. I'm helping them feel more, um, like they have more options and without the symptoms and without pain and things like that, because yeah, you don't want to feel too restricted, but there's some things that may help you feel better. Um, but as, as long as you don't feel restricted, there won't be as much of that binge eating going on. Um, I also think having, someone who's experienced with, with people with disordered eating and eating disorders is also important um, just because I think it's important to not m- encourage any morality associated with foods um, and encourage that, you know, you can eat everything and also like to advocate for, yeah, changing medications or trying medications that may be actually helpful so that they can eat whatever they want. Um, in those situations, so I think it's a combination of factors. But I think reaching out for support, if that's definitely something um, that they're struggling with,
1: I really appreciate how you said um, one reaching out for support. We're we're huge advocates for that for that here. Like if you haven't heard it today, you're hearing <laughs> it now. <laughs> like if you haven't heard it yet, um, but I think one of the things that I keep that I keep thinking about that people who are suffering with this symptoms and not knowing what to do and maybe not getting the medical care that they feel like they need or the support that they need or they're getting the brush off sometimes like that happens too like oh you're fine like everyone has diarrhea every now and again it's like well not like this <laughs> and like this is a little different um but I think also too one of the things that can happen as well that I, I like how you have your your kind like three options that are focus on expanding the diet rather than restricting the diet. Because I think in a lot of ways, we think I'll do anything to kind of resolve this. And I think sometimes we can end up in a real perfectionistic approach to it and thinking like, no, I read that chili powder is bad for for this and this is a trigger food, so I can't have any at all. And it's really refreshing to hear someone say like, well, let's play around with The scope in which you can have chili powder, right? Like Mm -hmm. where that comes from, and then also hearing someone give permission to say, "Yeah, screw that." If you want the chili powder, maybe you have disaster pants that day, and you have it at home, you know, or like you make sure that you're like close by. It makes me kind of reminds me of when I was first diagnosed with celiac disease, where I felt so much that i had to be like the perfect celiac patient where like i didn't eat any gluten-free sensitive substitutes at all like would not have them i was like i have to eat everything that's naturally gluten-free like and I was like what kind of like ridiculousness is that you know like why did i feel like i couldn't have gluten-free bread like because was, of paleo <laughs> I know because of paleo (laughs) screw
2: them and the horse they rode in on. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think it's also, it's interesting because, um, research in chronic in those with chronic illnesses, um, found that we are six times more likely to follow a restrictive diet compared to healthy controls. So I think that's like, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, and I think it's like the society of the, cr- the chronic illness industry too. Like, I, wow. I think, like, and community, I should say, is like, there's a lot of like, well, what did you eat? You know, like, oh, was it, it was like, oh, well, you, were you stressed? No, I lived in a box, my, like a bubble my whole life. Like, you know, just because you have IBD doesn't mean that you can't have any stressors in your life. You know, it's like, would, would, would adding in some, you know, stress management activities help? Of course, it would help everyone. And certainly it could help reduce symptoms, but like this pressure that you, like a lot of celiac patients have, and a lot of IBD patients have on, they put on themselves of like, I have to be perfect. It just reminds me of this one, um, this one, like 18, 19 year old girl that I worked with who um, has Crohn's disease. And she was like just doing everything she possibly could for her health. And it was just that, like, they couldn't find the right medication yet for her. They have since found that one for her, but she was doing so many things. And I just, I could like almost physically see this on this weight that she bared on her shoulders. And I was like, she was like, is there anything else I can do? And I was like, how old are you? And she's like, I'm 18 or whatever it is. I was like, do you know any other 18 year old in the dorm room right now? who's meditating, who's, you know, doing yoga, who's doing all that you're doing for your health, like prioritizing sleep quality, doing all these things. And she's like, no, I'm the only one who's doing these things. Yeah. So like, you're doing all these things and it's just that, like, it's not it's not your fault that you have IBD or that you have this flare. And I think it's it's so sad to me when I see that in other people because I know I felt that myself, you know? And I, it make me like sad thinking that you had that too um, because it's just like, I think that's something that people with chronic illnesses can really only understand. It's like that, um, that blame that we have on ourselves. It's really sad.
1: It is, it's so true and I think a lot of times, too, it's like even like in um, like wondering, like, you know, how did it happen and what could I have done? And to, we've, we've touched on that. And I think it's so true. And I think a lot of ways, like so much of that trauma, like getting the diagnosis and feeling like maybe that there were things that I could have done to like prevent this from happening. And I use preventing in air quotes like for one listening that you can feel like. Well, now that I, now that this has happened, I'll do anything that I possibly can to resolve it and to feel better and to do all these things. And so this idea of like, okay, well now I'll be perfect, you know, and now I'll do everything this way. And so one of the things that I think is so important for people to know, and we've used the term throughout here, like a little bit with the terms remission and I, I just want people to know that sometimes remission is not in your control, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, and sometimes that doesn't happen. You know, sometimes it doesn't happen for everybody. And like you said, um, sometimes this is unfortunate like, and I feel like more of a um, what can we do to take the weight off a little bit um, and to be able to say, like, yeah, maybe this is my constitution maybe this is what's happening. And that sucks. And here's how I can live my best life, knowing that this is what's happening. I think of a lot of people too with a lot of chronic pain, feeling like, okay, I I have to do all these things. It's like, well, maybe not that you need to live in pain. That's not it. And same with like Crohn's disease. I don't want you to stop looking and feeling it, but maybe take the weight of like, this is all on me to figure out and to manage. Maybe it is like, how do I learn to accept that this is part of my life and how do I do what I can to meet my body where it is and create some space for for a little bit less of that pressure. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think it's a a lot of pressure that um, oftentimes we put on our shoulders.
0: And I think, you know, Christina, following up on what you just said is you can get to that stage of neutrality and acceptance and still be like, That is so fucking unfair, (laughs) right? Especially because a lot of people with celiac, Crohn's, colitis, autoimmune disease are the only people in their family or like the only person that they know that has that type of chronic illness. And it can feel extremely unfair because like everybody else is just like living their life and oh no, like I go to, you know, get fast food and like, oh, you know, I had Taco Bell and then it didn't go so well. No, for us that's not how it's gonna go it's you could you could literally end up in the hospital from something like that right and so it there's always this undercurrent of like fear and I feel so alone and isolated and everything feels unfair and I think working with ideally working with a Therapist who is non-diet informed and also has a chronic illness themselves is going to be like the best person that you yeah. can finally find that you can find, <laughs> totally. or any kind of practitioner that also has some kind of chronic illness. Because I can't even you know count the number of times that I've worked with people with gut issues and IBD and celiac and all these different things. They're like, oh. You get it because you have it. And you know what it's like to go so long with having all these symptoms and not getting diagnosed and then finally getting a diagnosis and then be like, oh, it doesn't even matter what you eat. Excuse me, what? I have celiac disease. Of course it matters what I eat. But how do you not then yeah. turn that into orthorexic tendencies? And like we've been talking about completely blaming yourself and thinking, oh, I'm not in remission. It's completely my fault, especially when you have a newer diagnosis And it kind of feels like no matter what I do, nothing is working because maybe you're in that stage of trying to figure out what biologic or what steroid is going to work for you. Or maybe you're in the beginning of celiac disease when even when you cut out gluten, that's still not enough to help you fully heal because you have so much inflammation and these types of diseases show up with so many different clusters of symptoms, which is one of the reasons why it's so hard to get diagnosed Uh for so long because it looks like this and it looks like this and it looks like, you know, all these different kind of Venn diagrams are intersecting. But I just wanted to validate that uh, this shit is hard. Oh
1: my gosh, it's so hard. I think think one of the things too that that I, I like to remind clients of mine, especially ones who have a chronic illness, some of my clients have celiac disease too. And I feel like, and I would imagine this coming up for IBD too, there is like this especially like if you have a history of eating disorder or an active eating disorder or just disordered eating patterns, there's a built-in scarcity, right? There's built-in scarcity. We can't go into the cabinet the same way that everyone else can and just Mm -hmm. pick out whatever we want. And this like came into like a, a big thing for me over the holidays, where we were visiting family, and someone I had like a bag of like my gluten free food like in the pantry, and someone un- like unknowingly didn't know that I couldn't eat the other food and ate something, and I like lost it. Like I turned to case like I am food, and I like freaked out. And my mom and like everyone was like, "So we're not going to take anything out of Christina's bag, or she will turn into <laughs> anger
0: from inside out."
1: <laughs> and I was like. But I think it's true, like people, people who don't have that and don't live with this don't realize how much you have to be considering food all the time. And if you add disordered eating and orthorexia on top of it, oh good God. You know, like I didn't have a chance in hell like a long time ago. And think flame out of that. Now I don't have those kinds of thoughts. And now when people say things like, oh I wish, I wish I couldn't get the Taco Bell christina's like bitch, I wish I could. Okay. Yeah. Like this sounds amazing. Yeah. Like, I wish I could just roll up anywhere and order anything <laughs> You think I this want. is like, fun?
0: This be- is not a party.
1: <laughs> like, this is, like, this is not a fun party. Like, I want yeah. the donuts. You know, like, I want to get these delicious looking bagels that you guys are all enjoying. Yeah. Um, but I think, like, I just, I only say these things because I want to normalize them for other people and to know, like, even now after all of this work and having, being diagnosed with celiac disease 10 plus years ago. I still lose my gourd in front of everybody when they eat the last of the gluten-free chips.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it it makes sense. Cause it's, there's only so many things that, you know, if you don't have as many options and then someone's taking what you, the only thing that you can have, it, it is, makes it even more restrictive and Yeah. yeah. And for
1: someone who has a restrictive history, it's incredibly triggering, like having, yeah. making sure that you have enough is like really scary and feeling like, oh my gosh, I don't have what I need can feel really, really overwhelming. And I, I think people need to recognize that. And if you're feeling like you're, you don't have access to stuff at times, I think that's a really great opportunity for you to ask yourself, am I being too restrictive? Mm-hmm. If yeah. am I here and in this place and I don't feel like I have enough that I can eat, and I feel like I'm hoarding, hoarding what I have available. good question. It's time to ask, am I being too restrictive? You know, Yeah. Um,
2: if you, I if you have
1: brought two bags of gluten-free chips, yes, exactly. I don't have problems sharing. I just want to be able to have mine available.
2: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I feel like if anytime anyone feels restricted, they're restricted. They're too yeah. restricted, you know, <laughs> like in general. Um, so, yeah. And I think it's important because it's, it's interesting, because, you know, we know that it's very common for to avoid at least one food in in people with IBD. But then there was an also another research study that found with each food restricted, the pleasure in eating significantly reduced. So I think that's also important to keep in mind is like, just because you have a chronic illness doesn't mean that you don't get to enjoy food in life. You know, there's a I think there's a there's always like a common um, recommendation out there, which frankly, I don't like, but it always has this <laughs> recommendation, blanket recommendations to, to people who have IBD and flare with active disease. And they say, oh, eat a bland diet. Okay. There's a big difference between eating like a Paula Deen diet, which I'm not saying is a bad thing, but like could trigger symptoms with, you know, lots of butter, lots of cream, things like that may cause a lot of symptoms, but there's, there's a big difference between that diet and eating boiled chicken and rice. You do not need to eat boiled chicken and rice to have a reduction in your symptoms. Eating like Paula D, may cause an increase in symptoms, but there's also a happy medium where it's actually really enjoyable. You can add flavor into your diet without eating boiled chicken and rice. So I think that's also important because anytime you feel restricted, it's your diet isn't good enough. Your diet is failing you in some way. So we need to add some more pleasure into eating and make it sustainable. Yes, that is where I want to leave
0: people so that that's the last (laughs) thing that they hear. If you think you're too restricted, you are, (laughs) right? Make eating more pleasurable. (laughs) Um, So, Brittany, thank you so, so much for coming on today. I know this will be an extremely useful uh, episode for people with lots of little, you know, like truth bombs and tips and everything. And I'm sure we'll have follow-up questions um, to come back to you with. But before we let you go,
2: please let everybody know all the places they can find you. Yes. And thank you again for having me. Um, but yeah, my website is romanwell.com And my our Instagrams are at Brittany B underscore the R D and at We Are Romanwell. Awesome. Thank you so much.
0: Hey friends, it's Dana and thanks so much for listening to the Wholehearted Eating podcast today. Find us on social media at Wholehearted Pod on Instagram and at WholeheartedEating for more information about working with Dana and Christina for one-on-one nutrition counseling. If you love the show, we would love you forever if you'd share an episode with your family and friends or tag us on social media or leave a five-star rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts to help more people find the show. Check out patreon.com slash wholeheartedeating to help support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, bonus episodes with us and our guests, episode discussions, new resources we're creating for Patreon, and so much more. If you have questions for us, feedback on the show, potential topics or guests you'd love to have on, shoot us an email at hello at eating.com. And we'll see you next week.